0: Featuring Nobody's Pilgrims, a novel about three teenagers escaping the United States-Mexico border and pursued by evil. The book is written by multi-award winning author Sergio Troncoso, our guest for today. And it won the 2022 gold medal for best novel, adventure or drama in English at the International Latino Book Awards. Don't go away. We will be right back you mm-hmm. If you're just joining us, welcome. This is the Writer's Corner live show, and I'm Bridgette Limbanda from Cape Town in South Africa. In today's show, we're going to be talking to an amazing author, Sergio Troncoso, about his book, which recently won an award, um, and the book is called Nobody's Pilgrims. If this is your first time watching the show, please let us know whether you're watching us over on Facebook, on YouTube, on LinkedIn and also on amazon live where the book is actually in the carousel so you can get a copy of the book um, then welcome this live stream is made possible by Streamyard, creative edge and be live media so a special warm welcome to the show um, we're talking about Nobody's Pilgrims, and novel by Sergio Troncoso. But one of the things Mary and I recently routinely do is also help authors level up, because a lot of authors are using an online method to promote their books. We haven't quite gone back yet to in-person events, although a lot of authors are starting to do some uh, book signings. So here's one or two quick tips for you. A lot of authors are going live using their mobile phones, and there's nothing wrong with that but here's a quick recommendation generally speaking people will hold their phone um, in portrait mode but it means that you've got a very limited tiny little space to show yourself and your book and a quick way to fix that is to go into your settings, whether it's Android or Apple, and turn off the auto and turn on the auto rotation so you can turn your phone into landscape mode. And that's that way you can use half the screen for yourself and the other half to show your book or your books and just make it really interactive and people can see your hands and it makes for a more enjoyable experience when you are promoting your book. So, without any further ado, I want to welcome my amazing co host, Mary Elizabeth Jackson. Um, She's a special needs and disabilities advocate and also an award winning author, children's book author herself, and she's also a ghost writer. Mary, welcome. How are you today? I'm doing very well. Thank you. And um, yes, we do love our external equipment,
1: don't we? Because it sure does make a lot of difference. the way the presentation is. So uh, we want to be able to help folks look their best. Um, I'm doing great. Uh, we're super excited about our author friend today coming on and getting um, a little bit of insight into his amazing world and all the great work that he's doing. We're so we're honored to
0: be able to share him with our audience, aren't we?
1: Yes,
0: absolutely. And if you're a new author out there or you want to level up um, Sergio is definitely one of the people that you want to reach out to and uh, connect with and grab whatever nuggets you can from him. So just a little bit of a background um, on Sergio. He graduated magna cum laude from Harvard and has two graduate degrees from Yale. He is a full scholar. Um, he was, up until recently, the president of the Texas Institute of Letters, teaches at the Yale Writers' Workshop. So he he really, genuinely knows his stuff. He um, does. He, is also, he does. As we said, um, Sergio is the author of this award-winning book, Nobody's Pilgrims. It's a novel about three teenagers escaping the United States-Mexico border and pursued by evil. We're going to ask him to read a little bit from that book. And as I said, this book has just recently won the 2022 gold medal for best novel adventure drama in English at the International Latino Book Awards. Let's invite Sergio to come and join us on screen because we'd love to hear more about his book.
2: Hello. Hi. Sergio, welcome. Very excited to be back on your show.
1: Mm, We're so excited to have you. We were so excited to have you the first time. So we're just that much more excited this time.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Sergio, first of all, huge congratulations on the um, on the 22 uh, gold medal for best novel uh, that was just awarded to the to the book now apart from the obvious excitement of getting this level of recognition um for your book what would you say um is the significance of a book of receiving a book award because not every book gets an award um how does that make a difference when you can actually say to someone my book won this award
2: well you know it's interesting because it depends on the award i would say Mm -hmm. um I, You know, it, it, it does help in terms of putting your book a little bit further forward in terms of the public eye and readers. And maybe a reader that does not know your work might give you a chance and say, oh, this, this book just won a gold medal, the first place of all the books submitted for, the, for these awards. So I, I think it does that. Um, it, it also helps you as a writer simply to give you... A boost, you know, you feel like you didn't spend the last three or four years of your life and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't worth it. And you can see that it does have uh, a little bit of an effect on on sales. Um, And over time, I think this, you can definitely see this. um, You know, I I think for for a variety of reasons, I, you know, I'm happy to, to to get the books in front of judges and I don't mind competing because that's sort of what you're doing anyway. When you're writing a book, you're going to be put in front of editors, in front of other readers, and they will be judging your book. So I, I think I'm sort of used to it and I don't always win an award, but I'd like to put myself out there and, and have people respond to my work and, and give me feedback because all the judges, of course, give you feedback, uh, especially when you're a finalist, so you're one of the last three to be considered for the awards. And if, of course, if you win a very big award, uh, like the National Book Award or the Peel the Prize, well, then your, your um, sales skyrocket and all of that uh, is very helpful to you as a writer.
1: Mm, very much so. And, and it does get your foot in the door in a lot of different places, doesn't it? So, you know, there are people who don't think Awards are that big a deal, but uh, and in many ways they are because it gives a book validation as opposed to just any other book on the shelf in, in right. a store somewhere. Yeah, and and, and
2: and the other thing is, you know, I, I as president of the Texas Institute of Letters, which I just ended uh, in April, I had I served the two year term. I was actually responsible for twelve judging committees, and I appointed all thirty six judges, three judges per committee, and so. If uh, an organization like the Texas Institute of Letters or the International Latino Book Awards, if they have a process that's um, full of integrity, that you have independent judges, well, all of this gives more cachet to the award, because it's not like your friends judging your work. It's really independent readers, judges, writers, other authors judging these awards. So the, and and that I think makes a big difference when people understand that the award was done um, in a very uh, good way. Um, then of, of course the award will have more meaning to you as a as a writer.
1: Uh, yes, absolutely. Well. <clears throat> So we wanted to ask you, uh, we have, you know, several questions for you and we wanted to ask you about, you know, you we want you to tell us a little bit more about yourself and your education. Now, you didn't come from a background of going to Yale, right?
2: Well, or, or, yeah. yeah, I grew up uh, right mm-hmm. next to the Mexican, um, uh, U.S.-Mexico border. My mm-hmm. house um, on San Lorenzo Street in Isleta mm-hmm. was on the outskirts of El Paso. And I could walk to the Mexico border within 10, a ten-minute walk from it, so it was that close. And every everybody in that neighborhood were Mexican immigrants, as were my parents. And they they usually came over with very little. Um, in fact, we built our own house with our own hands. It wasn't pre-made by a developer. Uh, we we moved into the house before there were windows in the house when there were a plywood on 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 the windows and for the first year we had kerosene lamps and stoves. we didn't have electricity and we had an outhouse in the backyard and of course i always tell all my yale students well that's how i started i was very the very much the opposite of the andover exeter kid that had uh, a lot of money i we had no money and uh i think one of the things that made a difference in my life is that i loved to read I was a bookworm. And so I would go to the public libraries in El Paso and, and spend weekends there reading because that's really what propelled me forward as a, as a student in high school. And I also loved to write. Uh, my, uh, my, my sister who was editor of the school newspaper, the high school newspaper, the Sleta High School newspaper, she got me into journalism as a freshman. I started writing for the school newspaper uh, from freshman year on, and then became editor by the time I was a senior. And as a junior and a senior, I won Texas State Awards for journal- for high school journalism. So I was really getting into writing, and I loved writing. And there's even a, a picture of me on my website where I have sort of a Donny Osmond hair. You know, that's, that was the style <laughs> back then. I don't know if you know Donny Osmond, but it was sort of a helmet of hair. Uh, the 70s, um, the disco era, so to speak. And then I had just won a Gannett Foundation Award to to study high school journalism in the summer. So I, I, I didn't come from a background that went to Harvard and Yale. I would say most of the kids, half the kids in my high school probably didn't go to college. So it was very different. And And when they accepted me at Harvard, it was like going to Mars, going to another world that I had no clue, what it was like, I, I did not know Boston got cold. So I had only t-shirts of my favorite rock bands like America and Led Zeppelin and, and whatever. Uh, and, and, and so I had to actually get, get a used coat in Harvard Square when it started snowing because I got cold. And so, so anyway, so it's just sort of a long story of, of going from really the outskirts and the, the edges of this country To the center of the intellectual world, in many ways, of the United States.
1: Mm, But you give a lot of help, inspiration, absolutely.
2: Yeah, and it it all begins with my Mexican parents. I mean, I would really would (laughs) emphasize that they taught me how to work really hard. They taught me how to work until I drop every day, and then do it again the next day. And I just simply applied that to my intellectual work. So. At Harvard, when I was very scared and I didn't know what it was like, and, and I had an accent, I stayed until the libraries closed. I read as much as I could to catch up, to do better. And so, this sort of work ethic that my parents taught me was central to my success. And I, I tell people that, you know, especially if you're a Mexican American, use the, the good values that you find in your families to propel yourself forward. Uh, and, and I think I, I definitely use those values to, uh, for uh, success at Harvard and at Yale. And, and I think often we kind of somehow think it, they're antithetical. Growing up poor and then going to a place like Harvard and Yale, they're antith- but actually it's, it's the opposite. There are many things you learn from your parents who work really hard that you can apply to places like Harvard and Yale
0: yeah that's that's very interesting you know um and inspirational for young people i mean the most most people around us are not privileged they don't come from a privileged position and um so that's very inspirational for people to know that they they can still reach great heights despite their perceived disadvantage. But when it comes to reading as such, who encouraged that you? Who, who created a love for reading uh, in you as a, as a young person?
2: Well, I, I would start with my teachers. I had some great teachers in grade school and in, um, you know, certainly in high school and then later in college. And all of these, they, they found out that, of course, I love storytelling, I love reading. And uh, I love oral storytelling, a lot of which I got from my grandmother, my Mexican grandmother, who would sit around on her porch and tell these exciting, violent stories about the Mexican Revolution where she grew up as a teenager. And um, I, I had a teacher like Joanna Newman started giving me, uh, sending me books. And another teacher, uh, another English teacher in, in high school, a uh, Pearl Crouch, who was also the editor, uh, well, the, she was the faculty advisor of the school newspaper. She was always sending me articles and books to read, and they knew that I had this love of reading, and they fed it. And uh, I think another teacher, my my fourth grade teacher, whom I still am still friends with, Lori Ryan, um, she, uh, you know, she knew I loved to read, and every Friday she uh, would give me these little paperback books that I could keep at home and read. So, so I think uh, uh, you know, the, the people who encouraged me were primarily my teachers. And then of course my parents, who didn't have a lot of money. And uh, my father worked in, uh, as a construction engineer. And so he wasn't a big reader, but this is what he did. He said, I'm gonna build you, when I was a kid, he said, I'm gonna build you a shelf in your room for all these little books that you have. <laughs> so he didn't, he didn't, he wasn't a big reader, but he supported my habit of reading. Instead of uh, saying, why aren't you spending time, you know, playing baseball or whatever? And I did play baseball and I love playing basketball, but I love to read even more, he he helped me by building the kind of room that I wanted, I basically a little library. And so he knew how to build shelves. So he built these shelves. And my mother also read a lot in Spanish, she would read El Fronterizo and uh, she would read uh, different Juarez newspapers because they were both from Juarez, Mexico. And so she was a big reader and my mother was was probably uh, an influence at home in terms of the stuff she was reading at home. Um, I, I don't know if you, if you know, I mean, you know Reader's Digest, right? Well, she would read from cover to cover the Spanish version which is called Selecciones. And it's the same same book. It's just translated into Spanish. And so we had a lot of those that my mother would 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 read from cover to cover. And so I I, I saw this sort of reading culture, uh, at least being reinforced or even encouraged at home.
1: And you know that's so vital. Um... It's so vitally important to nurture that love of literature from very early on. Um, I happened to talk to a speech therapist yesterday and she's on this campaign for phonetic learning and reading right. in early, early, early babies. Um, and I know what I use with my children to get them to love books. And it's just so, so important. Um, and you know, you, I, I mean, you've just done so many things. It's just amazing. You have a library named after you, which, okay, I, I don't know about Jetty, but I don't know anyone else who has a library named after them. So I feel very honored I yeah. know <laughs> we get to have you on our show. And so can you tell us, you know, how did that come about? Uh, for something like that to happen, because that's really huge, and it actually, it's, it it should have been ha- it should have happened. You've read so many books; you deserve a library.
2: Yeah, well, it <laughs> yeah. it was probably one of the biggest honors I've gotten as an author uh, in 2014, and I had already written I don't know four or five books by then. I mean, my I just finished my eighth book with Nobody's Pilgrims. but in 2014, I got this call from somebody on the city council, the El Paso City Council. And they told me, I think they called me on a Friday, and they said, you have to get to El Paso on Monday. And I said, well, what's this about? And I thought, you know, did I do something wrong? And he said, no, 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 this is something good. And they wouldn't tell me about it. But I I knew it was some sort of, maybe there were a proclamation of whatever or something about Sergio Troncoso. And so I, I had to, of course, buy that ticket in two days, which, you know, cost a pretty penny, as you know, when you're trying to buy a last minute airline ticket. And I got to El Paso, and they said you got to show up to the city council meeting. And uh, they talked about, um, you know, my life. Um, they talked about how I had grown up very poor, and um, you know, they talked about you know where I ended up at Yale, teaching at Yale, and and all of this is, you know it gets me a little emotional because it it is um, an important moment when your community, you know, recognizes what um, what you've done and and so so anyway so after that they they voted and the city council unanimously voted to rename one of the uh, public library branches the uh, sergio troncoso public branch library and so it is one of the 12 library branches in the el paso uh, library system and it's a library branch that is within walking distance of my mother's house uh, and it's a beautiful branch. They just spent uh, $750,000 renovating the inside, and it's beautiful. And I know the, the branch library manager very well. And after the library got named after me, I started a, a program of, uh, called the Troncoso Reading Prizes, in which I basically pay kids to read. I, I fund these prizes. I give six prizes every year. And, and they're for middle school kids and for high school kids. And whatever child reads the most books between September and December of every year, and they come and report the books that they read to the public library uh, librarians at the Troncoso Library. And so they make sure that they've actually read the books. And whoever reads the most books uh gets uh, one of these six prizes and the top prize is two two first places at 125 dollars, and i think a second prize is a hundred dollars and a third prize is 75 dollars. and i fly in in december i present these prizes to the children i also give them copies of my books and of course their parents come and it ends up becoming like a big um educational session, like, how did a poor kid from you who started right here end up at Harvard and at Yale? And so, and I, and I try to help the parents, but one of my main messages is, encourage your children to read, you know, and read to your children often, you know, before they're walking, when they're toddlers, every night, read to your children, make sure they you're going to the library, just like we did with our kids, we had library day every two weeks, and we would go to our local public library and pick up 10, 15 books that they liked. There is always something that a, ch- that a child will find fascinating in the library. Either they're interested in dragons, or they're interested in trucks, or they're interested in space, or they're interested in fantasy. And I had two boys, and we did the same thing. My, my wife and I, Laura, we took them to the library, and we read with them every single day. Uh, and and the, the the library day was every two weeks, um, and they became, of course, very good readers. And it's not magic; it's really just creating a culture at home that encourages reading, and encourages storytelling, and encourages learning, you know, language. So anyway that that's how the that's how it happened, and I was very proud of that. And I and I'm I'm going to be going uh, back to El Paso, Texas, in December. To present these reading prizes, so I was just talking to the branch manager, and uh, and we're and they set up. You know, they also give them certificates, and it becomes a whole affair uh, for that day. And and I'm happy to do it. And I told them I will fund these prizes until until I'm not around. <laughs> I will fund them forever, basically, uh, because it it means more to me than just having a name on a building. I really want to have an effect on the community to encourage poor kids to read. And it's, a, and it's a community of working class immigrants. It's a community, you know, maybe lower middle class now, it, it's become even a little better than it used to be. But it's all, I would say, 90 or even 95% Mexican or Mexican immigrant community.
0: Wow, that is just amazing and heartwarming. And I wish... Um, more accomplished authors like yourself would do something like this to to get personally uh, involved with the library to foster this amazing right. um, culture right. of, of reading. Sergio, we're but, going to take a very small break. Okay. And can we ask you to ask a section out of the book? Would that be okay?
2: Yes, of course. Awesome.
0: If you've just joined us, you'll watch Writer's Corner live show with Sergio Tronco, and he's going to read us a section out of his award-winning book, Nobody's Pilgrims.
2: So I'm I'm just going to set it up a little bit, because I'm going to read two pieces, one from the very beginning of the novel, and then one towards the middle to, to give you a sense of what's going on. So Tutti, Molly, and Arnulfo, they're the three principal characters in this book. And they, they're all 17, and Turi and Arnulfo were on the, basically depicted on the cover. Um, they meet at a chicken farm carrying live chicken from trucks in, in Islera near the Mexican border. And, and Turi gets the idea of basically joining Arnulfo when Arnulfo is going to go to Kansas City in a, on a ride in, his, in, in a pickup with a foreman from the chicken farm to join them. And so he joins them on a lark because you know things are not going very good for him. Duty's an orphan and Arnous is an undocumented immigrant. And on along the way, they they will eventually meet Molly, who's also a 17-year-old, a poor white girl from Missouri. And and she joins them on this trip. And so one of the important things about the novel, and I'm gonna read this right right here at the very beginning, is that Duty is a bookworm. And so, very much, I guess, in a, in a way like I was when I was on on the um, on the border, and one of the things that reading does for Duty, it propels his imagination forward. He imagines himself somewhere else, um, you know. And, and in his case, it's Connecticut and it's New England. He's always imagined going to New England, although he's never been there. And so he's constantly reading and, and, and discovering books about New England. And so in this very first section I'm gonna read, and then I'm gonna read another section after this. You can see this, this, it, how imagination propels his decisions to, you know, to leave the border and have this adventure across the country. So this is Turi um, at just the first page and, or so in, in the book. Turi Martinez, reads a mystery book that transports him to the forest of Connecticut and to the adventures of a boy on the Housatonic River. But Turi's neighborhood of Isleta doesn't have forest and is surrounded only by the Chihuahuan Desert on the United States-Mexico border. Leaves do not litter the ground like a multicolored carpet as Turi imagined they do in Connecticut in October or November. Instead, hot, coarse sand covers the ground and swirls in the air with every gust of wind. At the library of Islet High, Tutti often loses himself in photographs of New England, church steeples like sharp white cones piercing a blue sky, forest dense and impenetrable, and layer after layer of misty green mountainsides in the faraway horizon. Could he imagine building a cabin deep in a thicket of trees next to a brook where he can fish. He will have to acquire a taste for fish, which at present he doesn't have. He will find a secret place where his aunt Seferina will never find him and his uncle Ramon will never bother to look. Could he imagine that it will be like a real version of where Charlie Brown lives with dog houses like Snoopy's and thick snow in the winter green baseball diamonds, and pumpkin patches, and a Thanksgiving dinner at a long, jam-packed table with red candles. Connecticut is the kind of place where a boy can cut his own Christmas tree in the mountains behind his backyard. Duty imagines in this Connecticut that he will not be alone, yet not with someone like the woman with the big butt in the magazine that Duty taped on the blue wheelbarrow. Studie imagines someone beautiful and nice, someone still only a blur in his mind, someone who won't mind someone like him. So this, this literally, that was the first couple of paragraphs in the novel, uh, and I'm going to read another section. So it's a very pastoral view of, of and, and very much of an idealistic New England, and so the novel is about going from the real, the, the idealism of his dreams of what the American dream is to what the reality is. And so so the reality is that he has to go through a gauntlet of a lot of difficult things that are gonna to happen to them, um, dangerous things, evil people after them. And they're going to survive these these trials. But when he actually gets to the real Connecticut, uh, something terrible has happened in this section I'm going to read now. And it's, it's, uh, it's, so it's, the, the novel is in many ways going from the, the dreams that you think of of where you're going to to where you actually arrive. And, uh, you know, and then by the way, when they get to Connecticut, there are some people who of course don't want Mexican immigrants in Connecticut and, and they face some racism at home. So well, I won't tell you, I won't spoil the novel, but uh, this is on page 219. This is in Connecticut where they are, something awful has happened and they just found out about it. And, and so this is duty, um, just trying to keep his dream alive. And really what the way it's kept alive is by his friends, his friends helping him uh, as he's going through these trials and they're trying to escape these evil people who are after them. So this is um, 219. It's near midnight. They drive west on Route 202 through Avon, Canton, and Torrington, Connecticut. The dark, empty streets in front of them are a reflection of what's inside Duty's head. The street lights mindlessly blinking yellow at corners, no lights inside any stores, no one out anywhere. Nothing. The nothingness called to Tutti. He'd like to open the truck's door and succumb to the river of glittery black asphalt coursing underneath them. Molly's hand reaching hand keeps him from doing it. Molly's warmth on his hand, Molly's head on his shoulders, the scent of Molly's breath wafting around his neck, she mercifully asleep. Even Rudy's grim face as Duty glances at him, his fierce eyes that never stray from the road, and his two tears, half dry on that cheek of brown granite, all of these images keep Duty from yanking open the truck's door and jumping into the night. So uh, one of my very favorite writers in Texas, John Philip Santos, described this. He said, Sergio, this is your best paragraph. He loves this paragraph. And, and it is it is sort of filling up the reality of Connecticut versus the, the the dreamlike sense that he had of what Connecticut was when he had never set foot in it. And, and so a lot of this um, novel is about this... G- this, these three teenagers who never give up on their American dream, who keep fighting for their American dream, even after awful things happen to them, even after they survive evil people coming after them. And and I think it's about the resiliency, the grip of these three 17-year-olds. And, and of course, also what happens is Studi and Molly start creating a romance. They're from very different worlds. She's never met a Mexican-American. Uh, um, and, and Tootie has never been to Missouri when they drive through Missouri and she decides to join them. But what? how do they connect? They connect through words, through books. They are both readers. They love to read. And in fact, they meet at the Mark Twain National Forest. And the reason Tootie and Arnulfo, who are trying to escape these evil people, stop at the Mark Twain National Forest is because Tootie is carrying a crate of books. And one of them is The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn mm. in the back of the truck. And he said, let's stop here. They won't find us here. And so they stop at the Mark Twain National Forest and eventually something happens to them. And this, this girl, Molly, uh, saves him, uh, and, and ha- helps to, to get their truck fixed. And, and they connect with her and then they start this word play. Duty is teaching Molly Spanish, and Molly is, is is talking about Connecticut. I mean, talking about Missouri and talking about Mark Twain, and they they love this wordplay between them, and that's how really their love affair begins. They find out we're from very different worlds, but we are actually in many ways similar. Have very similar values. We are connecting with each other, and and you know they form this incredible bond. And I think it's also about, you know, the, one of the last things I'll say is it's about one of the main problems that I've written about in, in essays. Is that I think the main problem with, with our country, the United States, is that we are not a we. We're fighting religiously, we're fighting geographically, politically, ethnically, racially, and, and we're struggling to come together as a as a group and that was really the central focus of the novel how do these three teenagers from very different worlds come together form this incredible bond in which they are they're risking their lives for each other and and as they go through these these trials their bond becomes stronger not weaker and 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 that for me was was the the gist of the novel how do these three very different people form a community and and show us in many ways how you form a community that is very bonded together and works together to survive and even thrive amid a lot of problems and and uh, evil people after them um,
1: mm.
2: so, wow. so that's, that's really what the novel's about
0: That's amazing. Beautiful. Sergio, thank you so much. Um, You know, so anyone who's missed this episode live and watching this on the replay, um, go back and just watch the entire episode. Um, So many gems shared in here. And again, congratulations on winning your award. So, to our live viewers and replay viewers, thank you for watching the show. Um, And we'll see you back next week. Sergio, thank you so much. Take care, everyone.
2: Thank you, Brian.